listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is a Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Christina Catherine Martinez to talk about her new book, Aesthetical Relations. She'll be in conversation with Isabel Sloan, but before I introduce both of them, I want to remind you that Skylight Books is now fully open, so come on by. Uh, we're, we're happy to see you and we're excited to see your faces. And we're also still, um, we still have our online ordering on our website, www.skylightbooks.com. So order your books and come pick them up too. Christina Catherine Martinez is a writer, actress, art critic, and comedian born and raised in Los Angeles. Her live act has been described as a great bridge between many different disciplines, including performance art, stand-up, and clowning. Martinez herself has been described as a snowy egret, egret? <laughs> with a broken wing eating a hot dog that squirts all over Joan Didion, the White Album. She writes for Art Forum, Art Agenda, Texaser, Coons, and also for television, including the Eric Andre show on Adult Swim and the short form comedy series Two Pink Doors on FX. She's a 2018 recipient of a Creative Capital. Andy Warhol Foundation Arts Writers Grant and was named a comic to watch in 2020 by Time Out Los Angeles, as well as a a comedian you should know in 2020 by New York Magazine. Isabel Sloan is a journalist from Toronto, Ontario. I can never pronounce Ontario right first. Uh, Who writes writes are the intersection of uh, fashion and culture. She describes her specialty as the freak beat and has written about everything from the cottage corsetic, freaky alien cyborg makeup, and the joy of eating at Hooters restaurants. She is a regular contributor to the New York Times style section, and her byline has appeared on Playboy, Elle, In the Globe, and Mail, Toronto Life, and more. She has a master's degree in journalism from Columbia University. Christina and Elizabeth, welcome. And sorry, I butchered so many pronunciations in your bio. It's 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 okay. I know there's just so many accomplishments to we had to squeeze. You guys, yeah. You guys are just you guys need to lower that down. Do I'm joking? I'm joking. You guys. (laughs) Um, And it's just so exciting to have you both on today. Um, You guys are so much fun, Christina. I want to hear that laugh again throughout the recording. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, no, but this is this is going to be so great. Christine, you have a reading for us today? I do. I'm going to read a couple pieces from the book. Um, I'll do the laugh first. <laughs> That's just for you. Thank you. And um, this first piece, it's it's uh, titled as a Q and A. So 
The title is Q, where did you go to school? And the answer is this. My best anti-friend in high school once spread a nasty rumor that, quote, Christina thinks Nordstrom is the most expensive place in the world. And by the time it reached me, I didn't know what manner of offense to take because Nordstrom clearly was the most expensive place in the world. That is until I got a job at the store. The store was, and presumably remains, a coterie of high-concept retail boutiques nestled around an overpriced Italian cafe in West Hollywood. Long before, shopping centers like The Grove and The Americana were smashing mall operations into Disney-like simulacra of Paris and Venice. The store occupied its own little world, somewhere at the nexus of suburban mall conviviality and designer boutique fraudure. I worked there in my early 20s. 20 to 25, uh, 22 to 26, the details are fuzzy. I was fired multiple times, but they always called back because posting ads on Craigslist is not very chic. And like all dysfunctional cathedrals of taste, the store attracted a certain type of slightly damaged and upwardly mobile runaway who felt at home among the kinds of crossed and confused boundaries endemic to working in fashion. One minute you're crying tears of wonder with your superior while delicately unpacking boxes of gossamer rodarte knits. The next you're being yelled at by the same superior for entering said knits under the wrong inventory code. Tomorrow you will have a performance review. Next week your manager will show up an hour late, drunk, climb onto the counter and wiggle around for a little bit, then jump off and go home. The day after that they will calmly punch in like nothing happened and you will also act like nothing happened. Among the right circles, no one ever called the store by its actual name. It was simply the store. In the trenches of hack fashion copy, the definitive article is often sacked with lending the banal nounness of items a certain dubious iconicity. Open any J. Crew catalog from the last century, and chances are the center spread is a pornographic close up of a white button down shirt overlaid by giant type that says, The shirt. But the store was the store and it was quite expensive. In order to earn any commission, you had to sell a minimum of $20,000 of clothes every two weeks. We called it hitting 20, and many of us did it handily and consistently. Some of us would hit 20 early in the pay period, usually thanks to shopping sprees by Middle Eastern royalty or a touristy London brood making fun with our weak dollar, or the Gettys, to the Gettys we were like Target, and then just take the rest of the week off or else continue to come into the store and hang out for no reason at all. The more you sold, the more your commission went up. So if you were determined enough to close the gap between yourself and your clientele, at least wardrobe-wise, there was no reason to stop selling just because you hit 20. Because if you looked enough like them, they might soon realize that you were fit to be seen at their parties and clubs and marathon white table brunches. And then who knows what could happen? Under this system, style and attitude were real trodden paths to help mouthy poors like us skirt the indignities of time clocky wage labor. I also sensed, though I couldn't quite articulate, that this also made us jesters and babysitters for people with way too much time and money on their hands. And we still had to punch a time clock, no matter how much we sold, pinned to the hours by the innocent candor of their pelf. I just like it better this way, they would always say. What horrified me about the rich was their plain cotton belief in some inalienable right to comfort, as if simply by letting the world know that it did not suit them, the world might bend to their will. And they were usually right. 
consistency has a powerful inertia. So if someone looks like they've been taken care of, albeit not by themselves, you instinctively want to take care of them. And so I did. I plied them with chic rumpled separates and inscrutable jumbles of silk that made the body look incredibly important and cooed approvingly at their tiny canines sticking out of purses that cost more than my rent. But they did pay my rent in an offhand way. And so I did not resent them whole cloth. It's easy to write off the angry customers. They are the war stories that bind every retail worker to one another for life in the form of pregnant eye contact. It was the confused, the distressed ones that made you want to die. And you do everything in your sliver of power to make it stop. Up to and including wrangling ever more senior and senior-er management to calmly reiterate what you politely explained was not possible in the first place. And so finally, you present them with a cut of management spiritually and economically equipped to empathize with, her, with their distress and whom they will finally believe. I fatigued at this, but I never got angry. It was too sad. I arrived at the store having dropped out of college for what would turn out to be the first of many times. I loved art, or at least I felt like I was supposed to love art by dint of not really feeling at home in the world. But I had emerged from Art History 101 survey totally traumatized by the very idea. A professor was young, an artist herself, and her biggest mistake, which I can barely forgive her for, was dragging her gaggle of goofy religious undergrads, oh, did I mention it was a private Christian college? Who were barely meeting the Venus of Villendor for the first time to an Arte Povera survey at the Museum of Contemporary Art. And some of us just couldn't make the leap. Those poor Italians, I thought, surrounded by all that history. It's no wonder they go nuts every 50 years or so throughout the 20th century, writing love letters to airplanes and rolling trash in the street and making crooked rainbow furniture. In retrospect, though, they nailed it every time. Once when one of the buyers showed up at the store with boxes of ceramic figurines from a thrift shop that he proceeded to spray paint glossy black, enter into the inventory system, buy from himself and then sell for hundreds of dollars. I learned something about art history that couldn't have been taught anywhere else. Once toward the end of my retail career, having failed to hit 20 for the third pay period in a row, the vice president of the company grabbed me tightly by the arm and growled into my ear, don't you ever do this to me again. His feathered hair tickled my cheek and I could smell the wheatgrass in his breath. This was Jake, a domesticated football hooligan whose entire sense of authority, dignity, and manhood rested upon his British accent, which dried up a little more each passing year he spent under the Brentwood sun. These furtive aggressions stemmed from the constant poetic bullying he suffered by his small gay bosses. I don't know how he ended up in the fashion industry, but along the way, he also ended up with a wife and a child and they needed to eat. So he took the alternating blows of snark and dismissal with the coolness and deference of slow moving lava. The day after that, he pulled a wad of bills from his designer jeans and brightly suggested that I run down to the health food store and grab wheatgrass shots for everyone. It was supposed to be an apology, I think. I'm gonna read one more really short one. Um, this one is called My Favorite Movie Part Two. Uh, there is a part one elsewhere in the book. <clears throat> we will remember this decade as the one with a lot of talk about what young men have been doing online. How the stench of theta male desire bloomed so easily into hate 
then violence, and now somehow political reality. Not too much Think Piece Inc. has been spilled over what young women were doing at, online at the dawn of the 21st century, but mostly we were taking pictures of ourselves. Mostly these pictures have flattened into the genre known as the selfie, which gained recognition only recently and only as a catalyst for the stoked ire of these assholes. These sodium stuffed dankwads languishing in their parents' basements, these milk toast ween jobbies shuffling hatefully around the office and practicing negs on their trapped cubicle mates. These loud mouthy jackwipes picking their noses in line for whatever widget of social distinction is being peddled that week. These fluff snart piles of excess boy matter shaving their scattershot facial hairs into ever more recondite proxies for bone structure. I could go on. When a guy like that looks into a sexy selfie, he thinks she is looking at him and not herself. She's like uh, the cardboard cutout girl in a liquor store beer ad, or, or any ad, really. Only in a selfie, there is no ancillary product to canalize the wellspring of must-have-it-ness. So instead of a cold one, maybe this guy starts to think that the girl herself and all of the wacky things she might do to him is the product he desires most and deserves. If this sounds too reductive or too broad or too unforgiving, I had an ex, a totally lovely and enlightened man with whom I happily frittered away the greater part of my 20s, who jokingly, but continually and with sincere affection, referred to the billboard across the street from his apartment as my Clamato girlfriend. It was indeed a billboard for Clamato, the really pretty Mexican girl smiling down at him. And she wasn't even holding a Clamato. She was just next to one. And I have no doubt this juxtaposition succored the love of my life to harbor actual tenderness toward it. And what is it exactly? The juxtaposition, the clamato, the girl, the idea of the girl. If there is a political case to be made for the sublimation of structural humiliations into harmless jokes between lovers, this is it. Anyway, I hope she gave him solace when we broke up. Good stuff. Well, thank you so much for having me here, Christina. This is excellent. Um, I don't know if the audience, <laughs> but um, Christina and I have been friends since at least 2008 because of the fashion blogging 1.0 world. The fashion blog, personal style blog spot industrial complex. Yes, absolutely. So we both frequently took pictures of our outfits and shared them online. <laughs> In the early 2000s. <laughs> if it's a business for um, yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much. That was excellent. So thank you. I want to start out by asking about the structure of the book, which is really fascinating to me um, because it's a lot of like disparate thoughts um, mm -hmm. interspersed amongst these longer lyrical essays. Um, I'm wondering how do you know when something is just a thought versus something to be expanded upon? I mean, uh, they're kind of the same thing. And especially because the subject matter goes all over the place. And usually most of what I write professionally is tends to be grounded in art, but I've been moving past that the past few years. It's just not to sound corny or mystical, but it's just a, usually like a sort of, you know, when something's nagging or you have sort of a visceral reaction to it, like anything really like, that sucks, or I love that, or that's cool, or I can't stop thinking about it. Or even when something's boring, I find that 
thinking about why I'm so bored by it, or especially if I find something boring and other people seem to love it. I'm really bothered by that. And I want to get to the bottom of that. In terms of writing specifically about art, I'm less interested in being the critic who takes down the thing that everyone loves, but I really like defending the thing that everyone seems to hate. Uh, it's usually happened with paintings or something that, especially stuff that I tend to think is anodyne or just sort of pleasant. And then to hear someone else get really angry about it. It's always just a-, a Like what painting? <laughs> uh, specifically, there was a, a show in LA by the painter Eliza Douglas, who's a Balenciaga model and super cool and gorgeous. And she's also the girlfriend of the German performance artist Anne Imhoff and features prominently in Anne Imhoff's uh, performances. And no one, I thought they were sort of hilarious and I really liked what she was doing, especially because the whole show was paintings, was her copying another painter's paintings, which I think is so funny and high concept, but everyone just, everyone I talked to was just sort of not interested or immediately because she's a model, you know, not interested in her art. And there's something to me more interesting about that whole ecosystem of an object and how it moves through a gallery system, but also the social system. So I actually ended up sort of tying it to her modeling career and other stuff. I don't, I think even people who do things, who do a bunch of different things, even though, even if they're separate, it's really, there's always some sort of underlying connection informing them. But in terms of structuring the book, it actually just, I, sounds weird, but I almost structured it physically more than somatically or anything else. So it's just, it's anchored by these, I don't know how many, like four or five long essays. And then there's little short ones in between. And that just sort of came more from, I don't know, like doing comedy and realizing that like things can be short and still complete, you know, like a joke. A joke is like, takes 30 seconds to a minute to say, but you like, it's a complete thought and it just seemed kind of like a nice way to break up these longer ones, especially like the deeper, sadder ones. I kind of, and at some point I just sort of put them all together to show my publisher just as sort of like, oh, this is a work in progress. Here's what I have so far. You know, some of these aren't finished and I would just use these paragraphs as like placeholders. Like this is a thought I'm gonna expand on. And she's the one who pointed out that, you know, this kind of just works as it is. Like, unless you have a specific plan to expand on some of these shorter pieces, she was like, they seem complete. So that was, I mean, it's it's hard to say that any of the structure comes out intentionally in advance. And it usually takes just laying it out and looking at it or someone else looking at it to tell you that it's already done or to tell you that the, the structure is actually there. You just haven't been able to see it. Totally. Mm -hmm. I love what you said earlier about you know, things that you can't stop thinking about and like <laughs> that, that brings me to this concept of like in interiority and having an interior life um, in the introduction to the book, um, which is by comedian Jamie Loftus. Mm -hmm. um, 
she mentions this piece of advice that you've given her that she's never forgotten <laughs> is that you have to have an interior life which I think you mean is like to both be a good comedian and also to just be a good person so what yeah where does that insight come from oh hold on I'm looking at it I love that oh okay the quote is actually you have to have interior life or you'll go crazy. <laughs> it's not even as it's not even as altruistic as like in order to be a good comedian or a good person. Obviously, I would punch my own self in the face if I said that to someone. But you know, because Jamie is also a really Jamie's just a very like amazing, prolific um, writer and journalist. And there's not many other like journalist or critic comedians that you know I get to hang out with. Um, I think it has a lot to do with, yeah, just my own sanity, because as a comedian and as a essayist, I'm kind of giving a lot of, putting a lot of myself out there. And a lot of people, there's a lot of really personal stuff in the book and it's kind of deep and dark or, <gasps> but I think it just has more to do with vulnerability not just vulnerability in terms of, oh, I'm vulnerable because I am giving the world the, the, the salvo of my unvarnished self, which is like, that's not real vulnerability. It's sort of developing the judgment to know like what parts of you are, are making sense or good to share. So people, as personal as the book is, people who are actually close to me think it's very funny that people think it's personal because they're like, well, I know you and for, this is not even a half of it. This is not even a quarter of it. And um, I like that. It's just a part of making me feel safe and feeling like because I'm a performer and a writer that I don't, that that in and of itself doesn't mean I owe anyone anything. I don't owe the audience anything. I don't owe a readership anything that I'm not fully excited or comfortable or interested in sharing how do you know what to keep private if it just I don't uh, I don't know that's the that's the work <laughs> I there were times I think um I was having this conversation with another writer about like the difference between emotional writing versus sentimental writing which is so tricky because sentimentality is such an anathema in the art world and in art criticism and kind of also in comedy. But I think because of that, people are really afraid to even try to be emotional. And that's something that's very clear that can happen on stage. And he was like, well, what does it mean to like write emotionally or like, what does that mean when we call writing emotional or like that's a piece of emotional writing? Um, and I said, uh, for me personally, it's uh, like there were parts of the book, like I went to uh, Mexico City for a few weeks to, to work on certain pieces. And there were instances where I'm sitting, I'm alone in, a, in an apartment in a different country, not surrounded with no one that I know around me. And I was actually just crying out of sheer embarrassment while I'm typing. And then for me personally, there's something 
important or interesting about that, but also I have to have the foresight the part of the process and the discipline is knowing that like, if writing something puts me in a pretty emotional space, then like, I definitely have to sleep on it and come back to it with like a much colder eye. So I can't believe I'm gonna reiterate, who's that romantic poet who said that's like, emotion recollected in tranquility. That's horrible. I'm not gonna say that, but. Um. <laughs> okay, that's interesting because do you find that when you come back to it with a cooler eye that those make the best pieces? I mean, not necessarily. Otherwise, you know, if that was always the case, then I wouldn't have to, then we could always just judge the quality of what we're doing by how we're feeling when we're doing it, which is totally not the case. So it's just, um, it can be, and some of them, some of them were, I found like very successful because I had just, pushed through some inner block to get the words out and that ended up being important, at least for the piece. But that part of just needing to go back to that cold eye is, you know, that's also part of the privacy and the vulnerability where it's like, oh, that was, this is just some mess. And like, I'm self-therapizing here on the page. And this is not, I don't think this is the raw material of what is going to become a piece of literature. So that's fine. You know, sometimes that's just the thing you need to get out in order to get to the thing you actually are going to say. Oh, yeah. You're right. I mean, you're not writing exo-Jane essays here. Ooh, bird! Shots fired on exo-Jane! R.I.P. <laughs> Sweet Lord. Um, so I've read the book multiple times, and one of the lines that, like, always just, you know, really gets me is a story called The Likeability Factor, um, which is the name of a book that gives people tips on how to be liked. Um, and you say, and so at the end of the day, like the tips have to be sincere. And then you make the poignant observation that there are no tips on how to be sincere. Uh, so how important would you say sincerity is to the work that you do? In general, it's really important. But I guess what I've learned is that it's really important, but it's not so precious. And, you know, I really am happy with this book and how it came out. And the lesson that I'm carrying over into the next one is that like, it doesn't have to be so emotionally draining. Like I can write like this and just make it a lot easier on myself. It's hard to explain because especially as a comedian, I'm getting, um, you know, there's the times where you do the same material over and over and it comes from a place that was very inspired when I came up with it. And then, you know, for the first few months, even I'm like really excited to tell this specific joke or like retell this story. And then after a while, like my emotional attachment to it fades. And then it's just like these lines I'm rehearsing in front of an audience. And it's tricky because that that changes the quality of it. That changes the, it's almost like less funny if people can't, can tell that I'm just not even enjoying it or that I'm not really connected to the material anymore. But that's almost when like, then my adult performance self has to come in and just fucking perform it because that's my job. Um, it's the same idea of like, I, I have, it's almost like my sincerity is a thing that I can, 
detach from and then look at it and see if it's working for whatever the thing is I'm writing or, or building. But uh, that's the weird, that's, I guess, the paradox for it. It's like, well, everything has to come from a sincere place, but I just, it can never be whatever that means, sincere all the time, because that's just fucking exhausting. Or, you know, being sincere doesn't always have to mean being intense or, or vulnerable, even frankly, like, you know, like I'm being- Something that the audience notices? I think so, for sure. I was having this conversation with um, a friend yesterday that, oh yeah, the audience totally notices. Someone pointed out to me, and you'll know, like in the second, in that second uh, piece where I talked about the fluff snart ween jobbies and recondite proxies for facial hair, that, um, you know, and basically those, that was like really fun to write. And what I'm talking about there is basically types of male archetypes that fall under the umbrella of incel. And I just, I don't want to like use that catch-all term in a lazy way. That actually started out, that that sort of story or that run of epithets started out as like a stand-up material that I wanted to do, but it was so dense. It wasn't really catching. Like people just didn't understand what I was saying at all when you're saying it. And then someone, uh, a person who's like a, writes about comedy for a living um, pointed out to me that like, weirdly it is, especially when you're performing stand-up, it's kind of 90% about energy. And he was like, I don't, I think most people in an audience don't understand what you're saying exactly, or they're not really, but there's like a, it's the musicality and the rhythm of your sentences and the energy with which you give them that is, that is always, that is what makes it funny. And then later, you know, when you think about it, it's sort of like, oh, that's actually maybe insightful or that's meaningful in some way. And not, not even always that sometimes, you know, you just want to make a, you want to make an airplane joke. <laughs> I love the idea that like some things are just funnier on the page than they are performed in person. Oh, for sure. I mean, and, this, and that's totally another different discipline, uh, which is like humor writing, which I don't think I can do, you know, but I've also had people tell me the book is really funny, which is really surprising to me, but being away, being this detached from it, I also find that really funny. I think it's very funny that this, that me trying to be serious at times and writing this thing that I felt was so deep and personal and emotional that other people think it's hilarious. Um, which goes to show you just, it, it is, I don't know, you don't always have control over it. And I think, I don't know, maybe that's where it's somehow tied to sincerity. Like it's less about, I don't know, I being true to serving, like serving the piece, serving the thing that you're doing instead of like trying to control how it's gonna be received, which is what I learned from standup. I mean, I mentioned, I was writing about art for almost a decade before I even tried doing standup. And then I feel like standup has made me somehow a better writer and a better person in general. Yeah, well, I mean, having like different skills kind of like they play on each other and they like sharpen your abilities. I mean, I would think. 
it's it's mostly has to do with failure because you know as a writer how the thing that gets published in the New York Times style section is like so different from the thing that you started writing alone in your apartment and that was messy and embarrassing and sucked and then but no one sees that it goes through your revision process it goes through the editorial process and so people you know sometimes writing can be so mysterious and opaque especially publishing because people only see your one version of it one version of it people only see like the polished version like laid out on the new york times homepage or you know freaking in the back of art forum or whatever and stand up as a form of writing is so humiliating and so much fun because you you have to there's no way to get better without failing in front of people there's no amount of like editing and nitpicking you're going to do in your joke book that's going to make a joke or a bit come out perfectly formed and ready and hilarious in front of an audience you know at some point the writing you can only write so much before you have to just write on stage and so that was like the exact opposite of the writing process that I had been going through and it was like I can't even really explain why I kept going because it's fucking humiliating. Like it's so bad. Like it's so bad and shitty and doesn't feel good and is crap ass a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's like scary as hell. And I could, I could literally never do that. Just subject myself to that. Honestly, you can. Like literally anyone can do stand-up. <laughs> that's also what I say. It's sort of like it's very special, but also not like anyone can do it. I start I I started. I also like there's no barrier to entry, not like the comedy or entertainment industry is a meritocracy, but like if you want to start doing, you know, people, I'm sure people ask you all the time, like, how do I break into writing? How do I break into publishing? And that's yeah, always you don't need a master's degree. Like you just do it. Yeah. There's no complicated, but even in terms of like contacts and just ways of getting your work out there. I mean, in comedy is can be similar, but if you, have no idea what you're doing and you've never had any firsthand experience with comedy as I did not you can just google open mics in your area and then just go you know um I like I like that about it hot singles in your area hot sing well well don't go to an open mic for that (laughs) (laughs) They're burned. Sorry, uh, apologies to the Los Angeles open mic community. <clears throat> um, so back to that like run of insults that we were discussing. <laughs> it's, just, it's truly endlessly funny to me. Thank like, you. Sodium stuffed dank wads and milk toast ween jobbies. Um, it just, yeah, like I'm just so curious to hear your take on like how much of comedy is about like being just a little bit mean, but in like the right kind of way. I mean, it has a, a lot to do with being mean, but for me, like it's more, and writing is this way too. I, I think it's comedy is more interesting when you, you don't, when I see a comedian who's being angry or being mean or derisive. And then, and then again, you're all, you're still watching a crafted persona. It's so much more fascinating and funnier to me when it comes from a place where like this person has, they're not just being mean, but you have to like think of, it's more about interrogating where your own 
meanness comes from. And like this run of insults was a just making fun of incels, but specifically like, oh, and I say, uh, shaving scattershot facial hairs into ever more recondite proxies for bone structure. I mean, this whole run grew out of me being angry at the fact that like men can just grow facial hair to make themselves look more attractive and like women can't, <laughs> cis women anyway. So in a sense, like that, that piece does have some sort of commentary about, you know, living in a affect economy image mediated society, but it came from this frankly, really petty place that like unattractive men can grow beards. And I just have the face that I have. So I, I think another example is um, I started doing, so there is a sub, sub genre of stand-up comedy right now known as hot girl comedy. And I started doing a parody of it where like, you know, and it's kind of a blend of like, and it kind of crosses over a little bit into like influencer affect. So I started doing this character where I would like come out in like tiny parade underwear and like big puffy shoes and do a bunch of jokes about how I'm hot. And it's sort of like, and I definitely had a chip on my shoulder about like, well, who are all these like young comics who are like, it's not even comedy. They're just like half naked and talking about sucking dick. And then as, I was writing jokes for this character that's supposed to be making fun of that. It was so much fun. I was like, oh, this is so much fun writing jokes about sucking dick and like I can fix Hunter Biden and I wanna fuck the 12 foot skeleton from Home Depot. And I was like, oh, I, I could see even just doing it, I could totally say like, oh, it totally makes sense. I could totally see why a comedian would commit to this persona because it's just fun. And then I got insecure because I'm like, well, am I mad because I'm just insecure about the fact that I'm maybe too old and not conventionally attractive enough to adopt this comedic persona without irony. So even though I think it could come off as mean when I do this character, because I'm like making fun of a certain set of comedians, it's ultimately about my own security. So like, I don't feel bad if people are insulted. And to drive that point home, I usually end that bit with like reading a passage from Susan Sontag's um, The Double Standard of Aging. But like I do it in kind of like my hot girl voice. Um, I don't know, I think being, it's not like being mean is important, but like meanness and the sources of it, I feel like and are very important. Totally. Mm -hmm. uh that's deep. Sontag comedy. I love it. Um, and also, I mean, like making fun of hot people is always punching up, right? So right, 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 right. Well, this is what's interesting. I mean, everyone, I don't think every, anyone disagrees that like comedy works best when it's punching up. It's just like no one agrees on where we are inter mm -hmm. it, on that matrix of privilege. And I'm like, I don't want to open up this kind of worms, but it's true. Like a, you know, a sodium stuffed ween jobby, you know, doing a set at like Uncle Chuckles fuck it bucket in the middle of the country, you know, thinks that they're punching up when they make fun of like, you know, a gay people who live on the coasts, right? And 
but like you could just as easily be like, well, no, I'm punching up because like you're a fucking white guy in the middle of the country. Like no one, I think this fundamental, it's like everyone's, the two main questions that like dominate contemporary discourse are like, who's looking at who and who's suffering the most. And that's what we can't agree on. So I think that's the, that's the most like intractable issue in comedy is that we all, we, everyone thinks they're the ones punching up, you know what I mean? And we can't all be punching up. We're not all at the bottom. Like someone has power here and we are defining that in such different ways that it's hard to, to say. I get that. So um, speaking of fucking the 12 foot skeleton from Home Depot. Yeah. Uh, there is a quote in the book that you write. There is an erotic power in knowing what you like. Um, mm. Can you expand on what you mean by that? Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's, to me, it's pretty straightforward. I... I think it's, I think I was talking about, uh, that was the essay where it's talking about being in high school. Um, and I felt like I learned that firsthand because I was homeschooled when I was younger. And when I entered, I entered public school in like the middle of junior high and then I went to high school. So I was only in the public school system for a few years because I maybe wasn't socialized around a ton of other children. Like I didn't, I was a, dork and I had no idea what was going on and I wasn't cool but I was popular because I was just aloof enough to not care what other people thought and like I had my things that I liked and they weren't even cool but just the fact that I had confidence in my own tastes and aesthetics and ability I realized was like very powerful and I still feel that way I mean then I kind of went through a bunch of other existential crises uh because growing up is hard. What but you in high school, what were those likes? I did improv comedy in high school. I so said I did have like comedy experience in that regard. I was really into pop punk and theater and I um, was still kind of recovering from a ska phase. But in terms of like what that means now, I don't even think it means in terms of taste, especially like in this day and age where everyone is so fucking scared of being vulnerable or being sincere. And it's like, and we have all these, we've invented this whole taxonomy to like label this type of half-assed behavior. Like, is he ghosting or is he breadcrumbing? And are you blah, 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 blah. Like, I do agree that that stuff sucks, but it, to me, it's just a matter of like, I think it's, it's attractive. It's hot when people know what they want. It's like hotter when someone, maybe that I didn't, wouldn't even, been attracted to before is like I like you like let's fuck or I like you do you want to go out and yeah. it's so much more attractive than some like angular dillweed in a slouchy t-shirt being like yeah I don't know <laughs> yeah I mean total agreement there it, um, they're just there there is I think uh it's it's a powerful form of like eroticism that I think is not tied to aesthetics at all there's something very powerful about like people I think people who just like know what they want either in life or from you is are very attractive and occasionally that's a 12 foot skeleton from Home Depot so. oh he knows he knows, he knows. yeah he knows it's not it's not it's not it's not because he was tall I'm not shallow it's not because he was tall it was because he was direct yeah. he was like I'm 299 do you want me yeah 
Um, I last question. What okay. is what is next for Christina Catherine Martinez? I'm glad you asked, Terry. Um, kidding, Terry Gross. <clears throat> uh, right now, I mean, I guess in terms, I started writing fiction last year again for the first time in like 15 years. So I wrote a short story that I'm working on expanding into a novel. Ooh. It's about uh, two psychotic actors who join QAnon. And I started writing... Um, I'm almost done with, uh, I'm really, I'm just doing a lot more uh, different types of writing that I've never done before, which is so exciting. I'm almost finished with a pilot that is set in the art world. And I, I was telling someone this the other day, most immediately I'm doing what I'm working on another book of essays. I think I have one more book that's more, um, one more book about art in me before it's like gone or before I've, feel totally ready to just move on to other forms, but um, that's what I've been working on. And it's more explicitly about my orientation to art as a comedian and as a performer, instead of the pretense of like a objective critic. And I shot a comedy special last year during COVID, which is being edited right now. It's very, you know, solo special, high concept, We'll see what happens. Go burn him, eat your heart out. I hey, ladies can make meta comedy too. He he uh yeah, I will I'm pretty sure I could best Bo Burnham uh in a physical uh joust. So we'll see. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. And thank you both. Also I feel like that's the, isn't that the lure of Bo Burnham that anyone could beat him in a physical fight? <laughs> Joe. What makes him accessible is that we can all, I want to We can all <laughs> I feel like it'd be like a nice, you just tag team like out and like the next person goes in. And just... I do, I, I actually, I'm a big fan. So for me, like fist fighting him in the street would definitely be a sublimated form of intercourse. <clears throat> That's beautiful. And honestly, I, I feel like whoever doesn't agree with that is a liar. And um, I have, wait, I have, I have a question. What is breadcrumbing? You said that and I was just like, what? Oh, okay. So I, leaned, I leaned in. Breadcrumbing is one of those sort of, um, I guess there's breadcrumbing, orbiting and ghosting. So ghosting is when someone just breaks yeah. off contact. Uh, breadcrumbing apparently is when they just like give you the tiniest bit of attention just to keep you hooked. Mm. It's like if it's like if someone you thought ghosted you suddenly like three months later is like, hey, but then that's all they do is like they check in every few months, just they check in just enough to make sure you're still hooked, but not ever, not in a way that's ever going to imply that they want you in their life in any kind of meaningful way. Um, but I also just think it's, there's a lot of, I mean, that's shitty behavior. And then like, I think orbiting is described someone who ghosted you, but is still like very actively um, they watch your into stories. watches your into stories. And I mean, that's all shitty behavior, but it also sort of like, doesn't account for like the agency that I have to be like, fuck off, you know, or- Do you ever like, hear terms like this and realize that you're in these situations and you're just like, oh God, that's what that is? Oh no. like. I, oh my God, um, I, not great. <laughs> I, 
I, I do, but I've also part of, I think me, my, my journey to crossing the transom of adulthood is just realizing that whatever someone's doing to me is also like, I'm, I've set up the situation. Like there's something about this behavior that I'm seeking or getting something from. And like, there's no, it's, it's just a, to me, it's a bunch of wasted, this is personal. It's, there's a wasted energy in putting so much effort into defining the nuances of someone else's shitty behavior when like, I can only control like how I respond to it. You know, like naming, giving it the name breadcrumbing doesn't necessarily change anything. <laughs> you want to start a church or like a cult? I'm in, like, let me know, just send me a text. Oh yeah, yeah, I, uh, thank you. That's very nice. I try to think that, I try not, I try to be a comedian and also not a shitty person. So that's very nice that you said that. <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. Like, please, please text me, DM me your- um, I will. Church, the church of Christina Catherine Martinez. And we will, we will exercise the breadcrumbs from your body. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to shave off this beard. Cause I, let me tell you, I felt targeted. And I was like, oh no, I had the razor to my face. And I was like, well, this has to come off. Okay, well, see, this is where the meanness comes from. It's also like, I'm not thinking about, also the archetype that that is targeted at is not you at all. No, I was like, like it's specific, I, usually specific, yeah. I'm hiding behind it's the a, screen. You're, no, you were right. It hurt because it was true. It was hurt because it was, I was. Okay, and then that's your experience. So like, if that feels mean, I have to let that go. I have to let you have that experience. <laughs> And you're right, and you're right, and thank you. Thank you for, you know what? I'm telling you, uh, you have your first convert. I'm in, I will- Thank you so um, much, I'm so excited. I will do the dirty work of your cult, and you know what that means. So if you, you know, you get <laughs> well, that, you get it, yeah. <laughs> Listen, Isabel, it's, it's, you have an invitation too. I. You could be Isabel's the... Isabel's one of like the Isabel's kind of like a bo like a, a, on the advisory board of the cult because we have we have <laughs> known Isabel knew me when I was like a super insecure like Etsy girl trying to post outfits on Blogspot just to like make friends in college and I look at and look at us now yeah yeah I'm still an Etsy girl, so honestly, that's why I'm ready because I need yeah, to yeah, yeah. rid myself of that. Well, I'm uh, still an stigma. I'm still an Etsy girl. I just know that I'm an you know that now yeah, I now I own it. Yeah, also, you haven't you haven't seen these. I've successfully I don't know about you, Isabel. I have successfully scrubbed any evidence of this fashion blog from the internet because, like, Lance, if you have seen yeah, if you've seen these photos, you would know what I'm talking about. Oh no, if you search me, if you Google image search me, there's still like photos of me from when I was 18, just like posing. This, yeah. this needs to be the coffee table book. It'll be like the anti-cool girl fashion yeah. book. Absolutely. I like this. Are there any, if there's any literary agents uh, listening, <laughs> actually, okay. I need, I need one. So call me. Thank you. <laughs> um, they, I feel like they, we can have a documentary crew to like, just also like follow this too, follow this cult, follow the beginning of this, <laughs> this, the Etsy girl cult, the, um, the cult of, the, the cult, cult of, of aesthetical relations, which is the like cult a, of aesthetical uh, relations. 
Yeah. And it's, it's uh, HBO Max miniseries. I love it. I love it. Oh uh, my God. <laughs> Maybe you should be my manager. <laughs> that's, listen, and that's the dirty work I'll do as the cult, in the cult. I'll be your, that's the dirty work. <laughs> um no this is this is I could do this all day you guys are so much fun to talk to Aww. um you, this has been so great to listen to I have one last question for you both mm-hmm. um I if, do you have anything you would like to say to the independent bookstore community as a whole anything you would like to give a shout out to there um give a shout out to Bo Rice at Skylight who's uh, a friend is great. He gave me some really good advice when I was like trying to find some inspiration for mm-hmm. just in general. He's a very good uh, seller, but I was sort of trying to find inspiration for this and he recommended a book. And then I was like, oh, maybe Eve Babbitt's is good too. He said specifically for inspiration, it's good to read people who are doing what you're trying to do, but like mm-hmm. are dead. <laughs> that way you don't have to get to you in your head about it, but you can, and it's safe to be inspired by it. And I was like, oh, that's actually like really practical advice that very much speaks to the insecurities of writers. Also to the independent bookstore community. I mean, they already know this, but like to everyone else, it can wait, like don't, and I'm guilty of this too. Don't get it on Amazon Prime just cause it's fucking two day shipping. Get it from your independent bookstore, like fuck. Thank you. No, you're right. <laughs> yeah. And I want them to share a t-shirt, including the like, fuck, like that part too. Like, it's literally just going to be fuck Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. And you both are right. Please That's- watch what you say, because I think Lord Bezos is going to be president in like 2032. No, no, no. He's in space now. He doesn't, he's gone. He's, <laughs> well, he's, he's, he's the president of space? He's the president of space. You're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. <laughs> Listen, I was, today I had the thought, I was like, you know what? Fuck the the Christmas Herald ghosts. Because why aren't they there? Why, what are their jobs if they're not out there hounding Jeff Bezos? Right. Oh wait, can you repeat that? You zoom cut out right as you said that. No, I said uh, fuck the Christmas Carol ghosts because if they're not hounding mm. Jeff Bezos constantly, what are they doing? That's yeah, that should cool. be their job. They I don't are. know what are the who, the ghosts of the ghosts of Christmas past. I don't know. They're like showing up in like my morning pages or some shit i don't know <laughs> they if they're not out on the in, in if they're not on that spacecraft jumping Be- jeff yeah. bezos currently what are they doing like, i think they're just bo- bothering me about something embarrassing that i wore 10 years ago uh, which is a waste of their time i'm sorry i and i blame capitalism for that i blame capitalism um it's an easy thing note. to do but it's it, well, Isabel has a message for the independent bookstore community, and I know she had been rehearsing this for weeks. So, <clears throat> fuck Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. And that's beautiful. And you know what? I feel like that's a great way to end it. Thank you. To both thank you, you so much. <laughs> thank you both. And thank you to all the listeners for coming back and listening. And go buy Christina's book today, Aesthetical Relations. It is on display at Skylight Books right now. So if you're, if I don't hear those feet running to Skylight Books, I don't want to hear Amazon clicks. No clicks on the Amazon two-day shipping. Get The it click from, of your high heels running to yes, get the book. Right, your Etsy high heels that you... <laughs> <laughs> the, the click of the Etsy high heels are those like, you know, uh, DIY Etsy um, earrings that are clanking around your ears. Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. If I don't see, if I don't hear that, 
I will be disappointed in all of you. Uh, <laughs> no, but thank you again for coming back. Um, and you have a great and beautiful rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.